Welcome back to part two of the British Broadcasting Century's Parliamentary Special, recreating for the first time ever 1922's parliamentary debates on that newest of things, back then, broadcasting. I was eager to try and understand today's broadcasting setup in Britain. A BBC, public service broadcasting, a licence fee, an antagonistic press, I think it's fair to say, a shaky relationship with competition, and for decades, effectively a broadcasting monopoly. All of that is decided in what you're about to hear. I'm not editing, though. On these specials, we give you the full works. Come back for season two when we'll assume the snappier documentary format once again. But for now, we delve back into the summer of 1922. I should add that we are nothing to do with the BBC. We are a solo-run enterprise. It's just me, Paul Carenza, hello to you, and our cast of plenty this week portraying politicians of a century ago. The full credit list is at the end of this episode, which I should add contains parliamentary information licensed under the Open Parliament Licence version 3.0. Who knows what version 3.1 will be like? We can't know the future, but we can know the past. On the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello. This podcast is a trifle long and a tad unwieldy at times. It's a special in which we log every time Parliament mentioned broadcasting. Some of those debates can be tricky to decipher. So if you can't fathom it, come back next time. But then you'd miss out on the dramatic delights of our 20-strong cast. So tune your ears into the 1920s BBC Parliament channel and immerse yourself in the political babblings of the day. Now, make sure that you've heard the previous episode for the story so far. We left the House of Commons in July 1922, and two days after the brief discussion that ended the last episode, July the 28th sees a whopping half-hour debate. This is the big one, as the Postmaster General reviews the Wireless Telegraphy Act 1904. Captain Ben questioned giving broadcasting to this monopoly. That's the consortium of wireless manufacturers, different enterprises uniting under one broadcasting company. Something we saw in last episode's debates is the frustration that MPs felt at how long this consortium's discussions were taking. The MPs wanted transparency and a quick answer, but it turns out broadcasting is a bit more complicated than anyone thought. So first we will hear from Captain Wedgwood Ben, that is the father of Tony Ben, the grandfather of Hilary Ben, both also MPs of course. In this episode you'll hear several debates. This first one lasts a good half hour and in it Captain Ben is concerned that the Postmaster General, Mr Kellaway, has gone a bit power mad. Order! Order! Debate on the Wireless Telegraphy Act 1904. Captain Ben. The Postmaster General has a bill now before the House for extending his powers, as conferred by the Act of 1904, to a more general control over this developing science. Therefore, my first point is that there is no necessity to continue this Act until 1923, as proposed here. My second and more serious complaint is that the powers of the Postmaster General under this Act are being used in a very unexpected and, as I think, in a very improper way and therefore I take the first opportunity of seeking to limit those powers or to deprive him of them altogether. I refer to the new scheme which he is carrying through in connection with the broadcasting of wireless messages. Everybody realises that this is an enormous advance in the matter of public news. Broadcasting a message, as anyone who has read the accounts from America knows, will be a supplement to the newspaper, and altogether marks quite a new stage in the civilization of our country and our ordinary social life. Indeed, since the invention of the printing press, it is 
almost the most important thing that has happened. The Postmaster General, as far as I can learn, and he has been good enough to answer questions on the subject at great length, proposes to put the broadcasting plans into the hands of a monopoly. The Marconi Company is one of the component members of that combine, I understand. The right honourable gentleman only named three, but we understand that the combine will contain those three and other companies. Marconi, General Electric, Metropolitan Vickers, Radio Communication, Western Electric and British Thompson Houston. What powers are going to be conferred upon this monopoly for the broadcasting of wireless messages? I understand that they have asked that the apparatus that they use for the transmission of messages and the apparatus which is to be used for the reception of messages are to be of British manufacture only. I suggest that when this house tells the Postmaster General that he has power to license applicants, it does not intend him to use that power to carry out some fiscal system well or ill-conceived which happens to commend itself to his mind at that moment. Supposing the Ministry of Agriculture is empowered to license dogs, no one would say that they were using their powers properly if they refused to license a French dog. Supposing the Home Office refused to license a Renault car because it has a French motor engine. That would be an abuse of their power. This matter was referred to, but not very fully, in the committee, and the Postmaster General said that this country should not allow this new form of communication to be exploited by foreign manufacturers. He is proposing to allow it to be exploited by some unknown combine of unknown composition with unknown powers, but having behind them the force of the post office through the penalties which are empowered by this act to impose. He has to issue the licence, and he has to impose the penalties, so that we come to this position, that these fortunate individuals or companies who have the monopoly propose conditions which give them an effective monopoly, not only of British transmission, which may be very proper, because obviously we must have control of the transmission messages, but also of the control of the instruments for receiving messages. I hold that the more people there are who receive these broadcast messages, the better for society as a whole. What harm could there possibly be in some individual, in some place, subject to the ordinary regulations as regards area, and subject to a payment for a licence, which I think is reasonable, constructing his own apparatus, or purchasing an apparatus from abroad, or getting it in any way he thinks fit, and receiving the messages which are being broadcasted? If the Postmaster General says that nobody shall be in possession of a receiving apparatus unless it complies with the specification made in the financial interests of the fortunate people who have joined this combination, how is he carrying out his orders? Suppose I get my licence, pay my ten shillings and set up my apparatus, and then get an apparatus from abroad, or get it partly made at home and partly abroad, how can the Postmaster General possibly prevent me from using it? Either the law should be obeyed and enforced, or it should not be enacted, because nothing brings the law so much into contempt as failure to enforce it. How can the Postmaster General, unless he intends to limit this thing to a very narrow circle of listeners, possibly enforce these rules about specification? They cannot possibly do it. I asked him the question, and his reply to that was that the companies, in providing these instruments, would see that the specification was observed. Other people who use instruments which they import into this country 
on parts of which they pay duty, are to be prevented from using those instruments for the purposes of receiving messages. The right honourable gentleman cannot do it unless he intends to have a large number of inspectors peeping about the streets and inspecting every apparatus to see if it complies with the specification laid down by the Postmaster General. I think the whole business is improper. The House is in great ignorance of the full particulars. They have sought information, but they have not got it. Then, what arrangements as to copyright has the Postmaster General made about the messages to be sent out? Newspaper news is going to be supplemented by this broadcasting. If a newspaper, at considerable expense, secures news, it is perfectly right that it should be protected in the monopoly of that news for some period, say 24 hours. In the dark as we are, knowing nothing about regulations or terms of agreement with this unknown monopoly, what guarantee have the newspapers got that their copyright will be secure? I am all in favour of the maximum circulation of news and the freest communication between people as a civilising influence, but I think the newspaper press is at least entitled to be assured that their copyright in this matter is not being interfered with. I have no desire to take up more time of the House than necessary. The Honourable Member for Streatham appears to regard that as a great joke. Sir William Lane Mitchell. Well, it's a great joke. The Honourable Member's contributions to debate consist mostly of objections and interruptions. The proper course to pursue this matter is for a select committee to be set up to inquire into it. Here, we have regulations being made on behalf of the government touching one of the most important advances which have been made for centuries in the circulation of news. And I think what I suggest is very desirable. A select committee should go into the question and so reassure the House that the terms of these contracts will be proper and in the public interest. Mr Kellaway. Well, I'm glad that at last we've got the honourable and gallant gentleman into the open on this business. What do you mean by that? Well, I feel that in this matter... On a point of order, Mr Deputy Chairman, will the Postmaster General kindly explain what he means by the words that he is glad we have got the honourable and gallant gentleman into the open? What does he mean by the words? And what words mean, I should have thought, would be obvious to every member of this house. They are a gross insult. I propose on this occasion to speak with a good deal of frankness. I very much doubt if the honourable and gallant gentleman in moving his proposal has considered that it will, if carried, put an end to the Wireless Telegraphy Act 1904. Does he realise, as a responsible member of this House, the consequences involved in his action? It is all very well on this motion to discuss all sorts of details of the broadcasting scheme. That is not what this proposal will affect if honourable members opposite succeed in getting it carried. If it be carried, and the Act is not continued beyond the period for which it is current, there will be no control of wireless in this country. The Admiralty will be unable to communicate with the fleet. The Air Ministry will be unable to communicate with their aircraft. No one in this country will be able to rely on efficient communication with anyone at sea. These things are proposed as a light and airy way of spending Friday afternoon. I say there should be some sense of responsibility, at least in the proposals which are moved from the benches opposite. It is not made on the ground that the Honourable Member has not had the opportunity of discussing the new bill which I brought in, but the Honourable and gallant gentleman has made it clear that he and his friends intend to resist the bill line by line and clause by clause. They have, I'm afraid, made it impossible that the bill should be carried before the House rises. Yeah. Mr. 
Bailey. You have made it through to the committee stage. Now that may be, but the honourable gentleman and his leaders on the front bench have made it clear that they do not intend to allow the bill to pass. That is the contribution they propose to make to the development of what my honourable and gallant friend himself has properly described as one of the most important discoveries ever made in this country. Let me deal with some of the observations that my honourable friend has thought fit to make on very imperfect information. He made the complaint a curious one, I think, against me, that I have not given adequate replies to questions. No. I have given answers to every question put to me in regard to this scheme fully and in detail. I went out of my way to say that the Postmaster General had done that. I have endeavoured to give the greatest possible information. The Honourable and Gallant Gentleman said that he had the greatest difficulty in finding out what was meant by this scheme. That is what I thought. Every question that has been put to me on this subject I have answered fully. And when it has not been possible to give the information to the House, I've taken other means of making the information public. The Honourable and Gallant member for Leith says that I am setting up a monopoly. Of what is that statement based? Had he seen my answer yesterday, he would have seen that it was an indication to those people to become members of the broadcasting company. No monopoly is possible under the terms which I have already indicated. Then the Honourable and Gallant Gentleman says that I'm going to prevent a man constructing his own apparatus and using it. I stated clearly yesterday that a man constructing his own apparatus would be allowed to continue the use of it. What is the real objection of the Honourable and Gallant Member? He thinks that by a back door I have been trying to introduce tariff reform and a protectionist system. May I ask him to read one or two elementary textbooks on the subject of free trade? And then he will find out how little relation his charge of protection in this connection has to this question. Is it something new in the experience of government departments that they have made a condition in the placing of contracts that the material which is bought with government money shall be of British make? That is nothing new because it has been the practice of the post office for many years to include in their contract a provision that the money shall be spent in this country or upon British materials, unless there be some overwhelming advantage to be derived by not so doing. In connection with this new invention, a government department has neither the audacity nor the ingenuity to exploit inventors. On the other hand, had I agreed to carry out this work myself, what a howl of indignation there would have been had I proceeded to buy German or American instruments for this work. And I am sure there would have been no one more indignant than honourable members opposite. Not going to be drawn into a discussion of a fiscal question which does not properly arise now. And if my honourable and gallant friend will only read the speech of the right honourable gentleman, the member for Paisley, Mr Asquith, in the debate on dice stuffs, or the same right honourable gentleman's speeches in connection with the Paris resolutions, well, he will find how little relation there is between the actual facts and the charge that I am trying to introduce a protective system by a back door. We have to keep this new form of communication in this country in the hands of our own people and see that our manufacturers, in regard to every branch of it, have a technical skill and capacity for production equal to anything in the world. I am advised by those engaged in this industry that in about two years, there will probably be some £6 million spent in the purchase of receiving sets and the broadcasting system. And that as much as 80% of that total will go in wages. 
I'm prepared to argue fully this question, not only in this house, but if necessary, in the country. And I am prepared, under the authority of the Act of Parliament, to make it a condition of the granting of these licences that these instruments shall be of British manufacture. That has been made sufficiently clear. Sufficient notice has already been given. Not only that I intend that that should be a condition, but that I do not intend to allow it to be evaded by persons who I know are already seeking means by which they may get round this condition. Captain Ben, how are you going to prevent evasion? Well, if I were to explain how I intend to prevent evasion, it would make evasion easier. I ask the committee just to consider what my honourable and gallant friend is proposing. He has admitted, so far as broadcasting is concerned, that it must be in the hands of British firms. No, I said that there must be government control over broadcasting messages. That is obvious. Otherwise, the air will be too full of sound. Uh, then we may have in this country some German or American or French firms setting up these broadcasting stations and allowed to engage in what has always been regarded as an essential monopoly to be controlled by the government. It is an unthinkable proposition, and I'm certain that no one who ever hopes to be Postmaster General would ever agree to allowing a new form of communication of this kind to be in the hands of foreign firms. Supposing we proposed, in connection with telegraphy or telephony, to allow people to come in from abroad, what would be said? We are quite competent to look after our own communications without foreign assistance. He then proceeds to attack me with regard to the receiving sets. I have said that these must be of British manufacture. It is a common practice of government departments. It certainly is in the post office to make conditions in their contracts to the effect that the material purchased with public money must, unless there be some overwhelming reason to the contrary, be of British make. Is there an overwhelming reason to the contrary here why we should allow the importation of foreign sets for this purpose? Is it because we're not technically efficient in this country to produce them? I would advise my honourable and gallant friend to consult some members of this house who speak with great authority on this matter. They will tell him that the electrical firms of this country have reached as high a degree of efficiency as any in the world. Is it that the honourable and gallant member is afraid of a monopoly? I have already said that the scheme is open to every bona fide electrical manufacturer in the country. Everyone can take a part in this scheme. Look at it from the other point of view. The electrical industry today is severely depressed. It is one of the industries in which the rate of unemployment is very high. And apart from the overwhelming argument in favour of the course which I have taken, I should like to know with what face we could go into any of these great centres where the electrical workmen are walking the streets and say we propose to sanction a scheme under which the communications of the country can be exploited for the benefit of foreign workers. My honourable and gallant friend, if he will permit me to say so with great respect, has overlooked an old text which runs, the letter killeth, but the spirit maketh alive. He is trying to score a little party advantage, regardless of the very great public disadvantage which would be caused. He has worked very hard in this connection in various ways to try and arouse some agitation outside, and he has not had a single response. 
Not from a single quarter have I had a protest against what I have done. So far as I am aware, the only organ in the press which has made any response to my honourable and gallant friend's pathetic efforts has been the Westminster Gazette. What does the right honourable gentleman mean by saying that I have worked very hard to try and arouse agitation? I have no doubt my honourable friend has done so quite unconsciously. I have done nothing of the kind. I will do my best to answer my honourable and gallant friend's question. By persistent questioning in this house, and by the sort of amendment which he puts on the order paper, he has done so quite properly, I admit, but that is not the point I'm emphasising. The point is that he has met with no response from anywhere. The whole of the press of the country, and common sense as well, are against him, whether it be free trade or tariff reform. This aspect of the case, which alone occupies my honourable and gallant friend, is after all a very small part of what is involved. If he succeed in preventing the renewal of this act, he would have created chaos, whether he called it free trade or by whatever name. I repeat that the only control of wireless which exists in this country is contained in the act which my right honourable friend is asking this committee not to allow to continue in operation, and this result will ensue if my honourable and gallant friend gets his way, if he gets his little bit of party capital out of it. The Admiralty will not be able to communicate with his fleet. Nonsense! If my honourable friend says it is nonsense, it shows he has not studied the ABC of the question. I repeat, it is nonsense! There is no power, apart from the government, to regulate wireless outside this country. And that is what will ensue if this act be not renewed. Any man can erect any station of any power he likes around our coasts. He can communicate with any place he pleases. We cannot prevent him. He can jam every signal which is being sent, and he will do so in the ordinary course of the operations of that station. He could jam every signal being sent, whether by the Admiralty to the fleet, or by the Air Minister to his aircraft, or by any one individual in this country trying to communicate with persons at sea. This is the price and the risk he is willing to run in what he calls the interests of the system of free trade, of which he has not yet learned the elementals. Sir Donald Maclean. The right honourable gentleman has made an attack in his heated speech on my honourable and gallant friend, and I hope that my honourable and gallant friend feels duly admonished and will take the greatest possible care not again to intervene. In the debates in this house without getting the Postmaster General's licence, I suggest that a licence should be in terms of the act which we are now considering. That is to say, that every such licence shall be in such form and for such purpose as the Postmaster General may determine, and it shall contain the terms, conditions and restrictions under and subject to which the licence is granted. Then, of course, we shall see that Parliament is moving in accordance with the best traditions which the Postmaster General has laid down. What has my honourable and gallant friend done? Well, he has taken a proper and appropriate parliamentary opportunity, which the right honourable gentleman and other, and I think better days used to take of bringing before Parliament a subject of general interest, which there is very little chance of raising at another stage of the proceedings. That is all that he's done. The Postmaster General has endeavoured to make the flesh of the committee creep by stating what would happen if this amendment were carried in any event. However, the Act goes on till Christmas and there is to be an autumn session during which the bill could be brought before the House. I don't really know whether the right honourable gentleman was serious or whether he was attempting to amuse himself by working up indignation and endeavouring to show that 
my honourable and gallant friend was occupying a ridiculous position. All I can say is that I do not think the Postmaster General really increased his influence or his position in the House with the speech that he made. I say again that my honourable and gallant friend exercised a proper parliamentary opportunity of laying his case before the committee, which he did fairly, and from my point of view, with very good effect. He was met with a tornado of abuse in front of the Minister in charge of the bill. The right honourable gentleman went into the most irrelevant observations about tariff reform, free trade and, and the rest of it, referring my honourable and gallant friend to textbooks and to further study of the question in which he himself used to believe, although I congratulate his colleagues who are now on the government bench, of his having become a convert to this particular faith, that as it may be, but the action which has been taken in this case by my honourable and gallant friend is justified on the facts of the situation. All he wants is that there should be a proper opportunity in this country for the development of this particular industry. I myself regard it with feelings of the greatest possible alarm, but here as the Postmaster General himself said that the principal manufacturers of wireless apparatus in Great Britain will combine to form a company or companies to provide broadcasting services. We want to find out what that means, and I cannot imagine a better place for discussing it than in this committee, here and now, on the motion of my honourable and gallant friend. What does the combine mean? First of all, you're going to shut out foreign competition. I suppose that an integral part of this apparatus is included under the Safeguarding of Industries Act already, but not content with that, the government have decided to exclude all chances of foreign competition. That I can understand, but they're also going to what's called corner the whole market. They're going to form, as the honourable member behind me says, an additional trust at home. What harm is there in discussing it? Oh. The Postmaster General objects to our discussing it. <laughs> but, but he does. He said it was a most unpatriotic thing to do. It is one of the most shameless exhibitions of party spirit in opposition. I think it ought to be discussed. This is probably the only opportunity we're going to get. I will leave for the moment the question of the advantage to the consumer of having the choice between homemade and foreign-made instruments and confine myself altogether to the question of the combine at home and I will assume that the Postmaster General has issued me a licence and that I have his gracious permission to ask him for more particulars about the combine. Everyone who is interested at home is entitled to know what the government department proposes to do with regard to this combine and we are entitled to have an answer so that in any event there is going to be no cornering and no trust at home, but within these shows at any rate, there shall be free play of competition. That is a question which should be addressed to the right honourable gentleman, and if unsatisfactory answers are given, I shall take all the risk of his displeasure and of the culminate which must fall upon us for so unpatriotic an action as voting against him in the division lobby. Sir Douglas Newton... I'm very glad to think the debate is taking place because I hope it may mean that facilities will be found for carrying the bill through to its concluding stages. There are at least three points of view from which this question should be reviewed. There are the scientific reasons in support of the proposal. We are not discussing the bill. 
we are discussing the proposals of the Postmaster General with regard to the bill. I understand the Act of 1904, which it is proposed to continue, gives great powers to the Postmaster General, and it is only the powers under that Act which are open to review and discussion now. Honourable members must not deal with the bill. I was endeavouring to indicate that it was desirable to proceed to amplify those powers, and I hope at any rate the motion will not be carried, because the whole of the wireless telegraphy situation would be in a state of chaos. It is necessary that wireless receiving sets should be obliged to conform to certain definite regulations, because unless they do, they will give off radiations. The Honourable Member is discussing the new proposals. We cannot discuss those now. Mr Malone! I would not detain the House any longer had the Postmaster General not deliberately and willfully misrepresented the contentions of those who have put down amendments to the new bill which is coming before the House next week. He says he has given us details of the new scheme. If I turn to the reply he gave yesterday to a question which he has taken such great care to publish broadcast to the press, I find he is forming a combine. He says that the private manufacturing companies are able to be members of this combine. Is their power in the combine in proportion to the amount of capital they subscribe? If it is in accordance with the amount of capital which these small companies subscribe, then, as far as I can see, the right honourable gentleman is going by this bill to put a monopoly into the hands of the big constructive companies. The Postmaster General told us about the £6 million that are going to be spent on broadcasting in the course of the next year or so, and he said that 80% of this money would be spent in labour. If that is so, then the companies from which the Postmaster General got his information must be operating on an extraordinarily inefficient system. Take two simple, vital parts which constitute the receiving apparatus, and you find... First of all, as regards to double headpiece telephones, that the American article can be got for 30 shillings, whereas the British equivalent in quality and material in every respect costs 40 shillings. The Marconi valve costs 26 shillings retail, whereas the same apparatus in America or France only costs three or four shillings. Mr. Halewood! Are these prices contained in the Act of 1904? And are we discussing whether they're to be kept in or left out? I understand that the Postmaster General has power under the Act of 1904 to spend this money or to sanction this policy. If I am correct, then the Honourable Member is in order. If I am not correct, he is not in order. I do not propose to go into all the details, but I shall raise them at greater length at a later stage. The Postmaster General has willfully misrepresented the intention of honourable members who've put down amendments in saying that we are not protecting the interests of the people outside. We are protecting the interests not merely of the hundreds of small wireless instrument makers, but also the million or so people who will be purchasing receiving sets in the course of the next 12 months. The two items that I have mentioned were only two out of numerous other technical parts of receiving sets which show the enormously exaggerated prices which the protection given in the bill permit and which millions of people have to pay to these monopolist concerns. 
The Marconi Company, which is practically a monopoly in this respect, cannot possibly supply more than one twentieth of the needs of the present time. The Honourable Member is going beyond the powers of the Postmaster General under this Act, and he's going on to the powers which he seeks in the Bill. Even if the amendment be carried, the Bill will be in operation until the end of 1922, and there is plenty of time between now and then to set up a select committee or a royal commission to consider what should be done instead of bringing this matter before us in a hole and corner way and answering vague questions such as was the case yesterday. Everyone knows that the trade in this country is full up with orders for receiving instruments. If you inquire of any of the well-known small firms, you will find that they are constructing between 10,000 and 20,000 instruments. They cannot anything like supply the needs of the country. This protective system which is preventing up-to-date instruments being obtained in this country is driving the amateur receivers to purchase out-of-date instruments. They have to buy crystal receivers which are not anything like so effective or efficient as is the valve system. That is, putting a handicap on the progress of wireless broadcasting in this country, I protest against the deliberate misrepresentation by the Postmaster General. Mr Kiley! It is well known in this house that the Postmaster General is gifted in many ways, but until this afternoon it was not generally known that he possesses all the qualifications of a good lawyer. That is, that when you have any doubt about your brief, make good by going bald-headed into your opponent. That he has done with a vigour which has been interesting, and has enlivened an otherwise dull afternoon. What would have been very much more interesting to some members of the House would have been the details which have been requested in relation to this subject. The Postmaster General drew an appalling picture of what would happen if we did not confirm the continuance of the 1904 Act. That picture left us a little cold, for the very good reason that if there were any danger such as he suggested, a ship in distress unable to communicate with the land in order to get assistance, he knows very well that he has only to come to this house, and we would pass into law in a few hours such measures as would prevent a calamity of that kind. The Postmaster General said that he intended to exercise certain powers for limiting the use of certain instruments, and that he has provided for a combination which certain people may enter. He carefully refrained, however, from giving us one iota of information as to the conditions on which one is permitted to enter the combination. Is the combination to be limited to those in a certain trade? He mentioned the electrical trade more than once. Must the manufacturer be in the electrical trade before he can enter the combine? What penalty or amount must a manufacturer pay before he is admitted? Must a manufacturer provide thousands of pounds as a condition of entrance? If that is not the case, what other conditions are there? If it were a question of finding more money for broadcasting stations, there are several ways in which that could be done. 
if the half guinea which the postmaster general is charging is not sufficient to provide for broadcasting, he might make a grant from his post office funds, or he might increase the charge of ten shillings and sixpence. I am as much interested as the postmaster general in British industry. I am more concerned to have the assurance that the British public will have at their command the very best instruments that brains and money can produce. It is very foolish to erect a barrier which would prevent our having the benefit of any invention or discovery, and to permit the Postmaster General to say that we shall or shall not have the best instrument that can be provided. That would be a dictatorship and a monopoly of a very dangerous kind. Before the Postmaster General puts his powers into operation, I hope he will let the public know definitely what are the conditions for the working of this combination? Ah, the Postmaster General has been called out. Money, monopoly, protectionism, it's all being puzzled out. Three days later, the question is asked on whether British wireless manufacturers will have to join this scheme, this combine, as they keep calling it, those behind this company, this BBC. Debate on wireless broadcasting. Mr Raffin. Has the Postmaster General decided to refuse a licence for the use of any wireless apparatus manufactured by a British firm in Great Britain, unless the firm in question becomes associated with a certain group of other manufacturers? The Postmaster General, Mr Calloway. It is intended that the apparatus which may be used for the reception of broadcasted services shall be limited to types submitted by members of the proposed broadcasting company or companies by which those services will be provided. Any bona fide manufacturer of wireless apparatus in this country will be admitted to membership on taking a single qualifying share and subscribing to conditions to be approved by me. Lieutenant Commander Kenworthy. What powers does the Right Honourable Gentleman claim to force manufacturers into a combine, whether or not they wish to join it? I have not said powers and do not suggest that I shall exercise any. But does it not come to that? The consumer is not allowed to buy an instrument from any firm that does not wish to join this association. Captain Ben! Will the terms of the licence or arrangement or contract made with these manufacturers, who are to share in the £6 million in the next few years, be laid before the House of Commons? I have given an undertaking that any regulations made should be laid on the table of the House. Colonel Ashley! In addition to making these regulations, Will the right honourable gentleman see that the consumers, at any rate, get these things at a reasonable price? Well, that is, I think, essential. The fact that every bona fide manufacturer of wireless in this country will be allowed to provide these instruments is sufficient guarantee that there will be no inflation of prices. Lieutenant Colonel Murray! Is the right honourable gentleman going to revise the prices? I should be very sorry to revise prices, but the facts that I've stated as the manufacturer will secure effective competition. How is the right honourable gentleman going to enforce the terms of this arrangement? I do not know that there will be any difficulty in that. Lieutenant Colonel Ward. How is the right honourable gentleman going to protect the interests of the foreign importers? Well, that is the difficulty, but I have no intention of interfering. Next day, August the 1st, MPs still want to know if the Postmaster General isn't giving too much power to one or two firms. Mr Malone! Can the Postmaster General supply particulars of the broadcasting services company or companies which are to be formed? Will a limit to individual holdings be insisted on? 
Or will any means be taken to ensure that these companies are not controlled by one or two of the largest firms, thereby constituting a monopoly to the detriment of the small firms and the receivers? Mr Percy! Could the Postmaster General tell us if negotiations for the institution of wireless broadcasting have yet reached a satisfactory conclusion? Can he make a statement upon the matter? And will he perhaps arrange for a demonstration of wireless in some convenient room in the House for the information of members? Postmaster General, Mr Kellaway. I regret I cannot arrange for a demonstration before the adjournment, but uh, subject to the consent of the authorities of the House, I will endeavour to do so in the autumn. The formation of the company, or companies, referred to is still subject to negotiation between the wireless manufacturers, and I am not able to make any further statement as to its constitution. The Articles of Association will be subject to my approval. I do not propose to impose any limit on individual holdings. Such a limitation might well result in the capital required for financing the service not being forthcoming. The security against a monopoly will lie in the fact that any bona fide manufacturer in this country will be eligible for membership, and apparatus manufactured by him will be admissible for use under that licence. Is the government aware of the opposition to this bill in certain quarters, and is it intended to proceed with the wireless bill this session? Uh, The only opposition of which I am aware is that indicated by the amendments on the order paper. Captain Ben! Can the right honourable gentleman give any undertaking to lay the terms or or articles of association before members of this house for their consideration. I answered that question yesterday. I said that papers would be laid on the table of the house. Can the right honourable gentleman say when? I cannot until the negotiations are completed. Before the recess? Oh, no, no, no. I think we need Jackie Weaver in here. She's the authority they need. If you're listening to this in the far future, that made sense back in early 2021. I'm sure that some other podcast is dramatising Handforth Parish Council. But here, the next and indeed final debate of 1922 was three days later. With a recess on the way and then a general election they don't even know about yet, this is the last chance for MPs to get the Postmaster General to iron out his plans for price fixing, the licence fee, radio sets and government control of broadcasting. And it starts with Mr Isaac Foote MP, father of Labour leader in the 1980s, Michael Foote. Debate on wireless broadcasting. Mr Foote. I rose to bring before the House, in the course of a minute or two, another subject that I think was discussed last Friday in the House, perhaps with a little more heat than light. It is the question of broadcasting. I think that before the House separates for the recess, there should be an opportunity of clearing up one or two points that were then raised. I think the Postmaster General had not the opportunity last Friday of dealing with all the points that were raised, and there were certain particulars in respect of which, perhaps, the public mind might be enlightened. I do not approach the subject with any expert knowledge. I have no more knowledge of it than that of the man in the street, but I recognise that this is a startling development. A very considerable change is to be brought about, and it is all the more necessary that we should proceed upon sound lines. The points upon which I would like to ask the Postmaster General for further information are these. What progress has been made with the formation of the proposed combine of the interested companies? Who will have the determination of the terms of admission into that combine? And what protection will be given to the smaller man, the man of no great financial resources, who wishes to join that combination? The Postmaster General has already announced that in associating himself with those who are connected with the proposed company, it is not intended that any of the receiving apparatus in broadcasting is to be of foreign manufacture. 
I want to approach that simply from the standpoint of a possible individual user. If I wish to acquire this receiving apparatus, my first concern, of course, would be to get it as cheaply as possible, and how to get the most efficient instrument I can at that price. Will the right honourable gentleman let the House know how the several companies that are to enter into this combine will be reimbursed? Understand that part of the reimbursement for their enterprise will come from part of the licence fee, but will any portion of this reimbursement come from the profits on the sale of the receiving apparatus? If so, and I assume that will be the result, what power will the Postmaster General have to see this reimbursement is no more than fair? What control will he have over the price that is to be charged? What power will he have to protect the individual citizen from being forced to buy, perhaps a dear and imperfect apparatus, instead of a cheap and efficient apparatus, if he were able to go practically to the whole world? I know that the fiscal issue has been raised. I do not think that those on this side are responsible for raising it. I think it was, in fact, raised by the Postmaster General, who spoke of the necessity of keeping these communications in the hands of our own people. As far as I can see, there is no more reason for insisting upon the receiving apparatus being made by a British firm than for insisting upon a motor car, or boots, or any ordinary article made by a British firm. Of course, a considerable argument may be used that, as far as broadcasting stations are concerned, they should be kept under government control. But as regards the apparatus themselves, which might be made by a clever amateur. Why should he not be able to go to the whole world to get his material? The indignation of the Postmaster General last week was a little discounted by the fact that he has only allowed this condition to run for two years. If it be wrong to have a foreign apparatus at all, why not exclude it altogether? Those, I think, are one or two of the questions concerning a movement that is interesting the public mind very considerably, and upon which the Postmaster General may be able to give us some enlightenment. Mr Calloway. I will reply at once to the Honourable Member, not because I want to interfere with any other member who desires to speak on the subject, but because I understand that those interested in the question would like me to reply immediately, so that they may have an opportunity of making any observations on what I may say. Every occasion on which this subject is discussed in the House is, in my opinion, of real value to the promotion of wireless broadcasting, which is in its infancy in this country. It was only a toy at the end of last year. Within twelve months, I do not think I am too sanguine, it may become one of the most valuable sources of communication, within certain limitations, at our disposal. But I make this general observation at the beginning. We must have regard to two things. One is that broadcasting has the defect of its qualities. For individual communication, it is, I think, impracticable. But for distributing forms of information of common interest to great numbers of people, it may indeed prove to be a most valuable resource, both for education and possibly for political propaganda. It may be convenient if I give what is the history of this question so far as I have been connected with it. The first movement was in January of this year, when the wireless societies throughout this country asked permission and were given sanction by the Imperial Communications Committee to transmit wireless telegraphy signals. The question was considered again on the 5th of April, when the wireless subcommittee of the Imperial Communications Committee argued that broadcasting by wireless telephony might be permitted from certain specified stations, uh, the stations being centres, they may not be in the exact positions I indicate, in London, Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle, Cardiff, Glasgow or Edinburgh, and Aberdeen, and Plymouth has now been added. It was decided that licences should be granted to broadcast on a wavelength of 440 metres, up to a maximum input of 1.5 kilowatts. 
Now, on 22nd of April, representations were made to us that that limitation of 440 metres might seriously retard progress. It was then agreed uh, that a band of wavelengths 350 to 423 metres should be used for broadcasting, on the condition that the government, when necessary, could order broadcasting to cease for a short period on such occasions as manoeuvres or the danger of interfering with important government communications. The hours provisionally agreed upon during which broadcasting should be permitted were between 5 and 11pm on weekdays and all day on Sundays. On the 18th of May, a conference was held at the post office, presided over, I think, by the secretary of the post office. I myself uh, was not present. At that conference, 24 firms interested in the production of wireless material were present. It was recognised by all the firms and by all the officials of the post office that if the thing was to succeed, you must have efficient, reliable and continuous services of broadcasting. Unless you can secure that, people are not going to interest themselves. And the drawback, I think, up to the present in this country, has been that the sort of information and the sort of programme which has been broadcasted has been of the driest and most unattractive and I think least beneficial character. If the best use is to be made of this new form of communication, it must touch life at many aspects. And one of my principal desires, so far as I've been associated with laying down the conditions, has been to see that thoroughly informative and valuable information is broadcasted. It was recognised by all the technical people who were engaged in the discussion that it would be impossible to have a large number of firms broadcasting. That is physically impossible. It would result in a sort of chaos, only in a much aggravated form than that which has arisen in the United States of America, which has compelled the United States, or the department over which Mr. Hoover presides, and who is responsible for broadcasting, to do what we are now doing at the beginning, and that is proceed to lay down very drastic regulations indeed for the control of wireless broadcasting. It was therefore necessary that the firms should come together if the thing was to be efficiently done. You could not have 24 firms broadcasting in this country. There was not room. Physical laws would not permit it. It was suggested to them that for the purpose of broadcasting information, whatever it might be, they should form themselves, if possible, into one group, one company. At this point, I wish the House to draw this distinction, which is very necessary and which I am afraid has been overlooked, between the broadcasting services and the provision of instruments. They are totally distinct. So far as the provision of instruments is concerned, any qualified firm of electrical manufacturers, and the more the better, can provide them and make them. But you could not possibly have that in connection with the broadcasting service. I hope that distinction will be kept clearly in mind. The firms met on the 18th of May, they came to the post office again on the 16th of June, and they then told the officials of the sort of progress they had been able to make in arriving at agreement as to provisions of the broadcasting service. Frankly, I am disappointed at the progress they have made. If a government department had been as slow as this, the whole country would have rung with it. But I'm glad to say that at last there is a prospect of getting on. I think that prospect will be realised within the course of the next fortnight and that they will have come to an agreement amongst themselves in regard to the company or companies, there may be two, I hope myself in the interests of broadcasting there will be only one, in regard to the company or companies which will have control of the broadcasting services. I've laid down certain conditions which must govern the operations of the company. 
and must be expressed in their articles of association. These latter will be subject to the approval of the Postmaster General. There will be no limit to the extent of the individual holding. Any bona fide British manufacturer of wireless apparatus must be allowed to become a member of the group on taking a £1 share. I think that ought to satisfy every manufacturer in this country who is capable of producing wireless apparatus at all. The licence for a broadcasting company is to be subject to the maintenance of an efficient service, and if, in my opinion, the services fail and are not efficient, I shall have authority to withdraw the licence. Contribution is to be made towards the broadcasting expenses of a portion of the licence fees for receiving sets. That is one way in which the expenses of the station will be met by a share of the licence money. It's also agreed that there shall be, out of the charge made for every set that is sold, a contribution to the expenses of the broadcasting company, so that there will be two forms of revenue available. One is a share of the annual licence, and the other a contribution to be made out of the receipts from every set sold. The profits of the broadcasting company, and I would ask honourable members to distinguish between that kind of company and the manufacturers of receiving sets, the profits of that company... Is that share in addition to the protective duty? Oh, there is no protective duty. I know nothing at all about that. Uh, the profits of the broadcasting company are to be limited to 7.5%. We've had a good deal of difficulty in getting companies to agree to that limitation. And I think it will be admitted to be a very drastic limitation in what is necessarily a new and difficult undertaking. But I'm glad to say that I think we have got the companies to agree to that very drastic limitation upon their profits. Though I do not think there is going to be any raging and tearing hurry on the part of the general public for an investment of the sort. The receiving licences are limited to types submitted by members of broadcasting companies and must conform to certain technical standards of the post office. Now I come to what is really, I think, the only ground of criticism which I have heard. Mr Foote! There was a question whether there would be any control of the price of receiving instruments to guard against a combine of the makers if there is no foreign competition. I control the price here. Every manufacturer in this country capable of producing wireless instruments will receive a licence from the post office if he conforms to the standard laid down by the post office. What you have to fear in this is not monopoly. It is more likely you will have cutthroat competition. Anyway, that is the protection. Every manufacturer in this country who produces an instrument up to the standard laid down by the post office will be free to put the instrument on the market once he has taken his £1 share in the company responsible for the broadcasting. Now, the principal point of criticism is in regard to my decision to limit, for a period of two years, the licensing of instruments to those made in this country. In taking this decision, my attitude was not coloured at all by fiscal considerations. On the contrary, I was entirely guided by what I thought was in the best interests of wireless broadcasting in Great Britain. I'm satisfied, and I believe everyone will be forced to that conclusion on careful consideration of these technical and practical aspects of the question, that without such a limitation, you would never get an efficient broadcasting service established in Great Britain. Be it remembered that the whole cost of these broadcasting services is to be borne by the manufacturers in the group, and it is not reasonable to suppose that they would go to that expense and take that risk with the limited profit if some manufacturer on the continent gets the whole or a large portion of the benefit without having made any contribution. That really is not sound business. 
Now, the first essential is to make a successful and efficient broadcasting service, and you certainly will not get that, believe me, unless you give some period of time to introduce a provision of this kind. My own opinion is that anyone approaching the problem from the angle from which I am bound to approach it would have come to that conclusion. I think this covers most of the points put by honourable members. The main considerations which any government ought to have in view of dealing with this problem seem to me, first, that the broadcasting services are efficient. That I have already mentioned. There must be regulation, so as to prevent any interference with the military and commercial services. We must be able to ensure compliance with international wireless agreements, and international wireless agreements are becoming increasingly important. There must be safeguards against monopoly. I think I've secured these safeguards in the conditions which I've outlined to the House. You must be able to get the benefit of any invention wherever made. I was not at all debarred by the fear of the fiscal question being raised from dealing with this question. My anxiety was rather that if you got anything like a monopoly, you would sterilise developments, and that broadcasting in this country might be deprived of the benefit of inventions. If that had not been the case, the fear of development being sterilised, I should certainly not have made these conditions. But it must be remembered that if any invention is discovered abroad of which we have not the benefit in this country, it will always be open to our manufacturers to obtain the patent and to develop it and use it here. Captain Ben, supposing a foreigner take out a patent in this country? I think the Honourable and Gannon gentleman is right. That is a case which has arisen frequently in respect of our own manufacturers. They have used the patent. The present Prime Minister, when he was at the Board of Trade, made provisions in regard to this matter. I know the Act very well. It was simply this, that if a foreign patentee did not use his patent, you could. But you are proposing not to allow a foreign patentee to use it at all. I think the Honourable and Gallant Gentleman will find on further reflection that it is possible for the manufacturer in this country to obtain, on terms, the benefit of any change and exploit it in this country. I can assure the House that I gave great attention to this matter because I realised that it was the principal danger. With regard to the other dangers which have been referred to, I'm satisfied they will not in fact operate, and that was why I agreed to this provision. I think I've now covered all the points raised, and I will conclude by saying that in dealing with this problem throughout, I have had no other desire than to see that this important form of communication should be developed in this country to the greatest possible extent. I do not agree that the communications of any country are on exactly the same plane as the supply of boots or any ordinary commodity. The communications of the country have always been regarded not only as a key industry, but as being much more fundamental. You must keep your communications in your own hands, and you should be able to improve your own people in the practice and provision of every device which would improve your form of communications. Here is a new form of communication which is in its very infancy, and from the point of view of the Postmaster General, I regard this new form in all its aspects, both broadcasting and the provision of the instruments, as something which should be under British control. The Honourable and Learned Member opposite thinks that I am wrong on this point, but I am prepared to leave the matter to the test of time. There is a great deal with which we all cordial agree in the statement just made by the Postmaster General. He has pointed out that this is a very great advance in the means of communication, and we are all agreed upon that point. The second point upon which we agree with the right honourable gentleman is that you must have government control of broadcasting messages, because you would otherwise have a powerful means of communication passing out of the hands of the government. Therefore, there must be control and power to prohibit the sending of messages. 
We must not forget, also, that there are times when the air is required for the service of the government, and I would suggest nothing for one moment which would go contrary to that. That is where the right honourable gentleman is right when he says that the postal telegraphs, and the other things he mentioned, must be in the hands of the government. I wish to inquire who in the Broadcasting Association is going to protect the interests of copyright. Is he going to allow those whose copyright has been infringed to sue the broadcasting company, and is he at the same time going to protect them? I think this is a very important point. Up to now, we are in general agreement that the system is a great invention and that the stations of transmission must be under tight control of the government. This is where we part company with the Postmaster General. When the right honourable gentleman uses the phrase means of communication, he includes the people who listen in. And there is absolutely no reasons of state why anyone should not be permitted to listen without any control whatever. The right honourable gentleman cannot interfere with such communications. And it would be as reasonable to base his argument for broadcasting on the argument of public necessity of the control of communications in regard to receiving apparatus, as it would be to say that while the post office must keep in the hands of the British government the distribution of letters, it will not permit any foreigner to receive the letters. The necessity for controlling this matter lies in the centre. I come to the arguments made by the Postmaster General for receiving. I am relying upon a newspaper report in The Times on this question, and I understand that in France, the committee appointed by the post office there has decided that the broad principle to be followed is that receiving apparatus may be freely used after full registration. There is not a word of any sort about interference with the manufacturer or any sort of limitation of the position of the manufacturer. The Postmaster General is better able than anyone else to say whether that is correct or not. But, if it is correct, it would seem to show that the French are dealing with this matter in a much more broad-minded way. What does the Postmaster General propose? His proposal is to set up a monopoly of all the firms engaged both in broadcasting and the making of receiving instruments. The people who broadcast want to be paid for sending out the messages, and they are to be paid by a means of a portion of a licence fee paid for the receiving instrument. In the case of the man who receives the messages on an instrument, it is not unreasonable that when he pays his licence fee, a part of it should go to the man who sends the message. The Postmaster General says that nobody may buy and use a receiving apparatus unless he buys it from a limited field of manufacturers. And that is a monopoly. How is the broadcasting station to be dealt with? In part, it is to receive a fraction of the licence fee and also a share of the profits from the manufacture of the receiving instruments. The interest of the broadcasting station is to get as much money as they can through the higher price at which the receiving apparatus is sold, and the more they get, the better they are pleased. The interest of the seller of the receiving apparatus is to get as much as he can, but he is protected from competition outside, and therefore, owing to this combination, he is safe in raising his price. Therefore, you have here the essential elements of a combine and a monopoly, which may be operated against the interests of the public. 
The Postmaster General has spoken about the whole of this enterprise as being a difficult thing to get started, and he says it needs all the encouragement we can give it. May I remind the House that last week the right honourable gentleman told us that six million pounds were going to be spent in two years in the production of receiving apparatus. I think it is a sound business proposition to go into such a combine, the receipts of which are estimated at a sum which the Postmaster General puts at six million pounds during the first two years. I come to a point which has not been answered, and it is... How is the Postmaster General going to enforce these conditions? And how is he going to prevent importation? Is he going to prohibit the importation of foreign sets? No. Is he going to prohibit the sale of foreign sets by anyone who cares to sell them? No, no. Then, is he going to take the person who buys a foreign set and impose the terms of the license upon him? In that way, he will not prevent the sale of these sets. Supposing a man receives one of these sets and puts it up. How is the Postmaster General going to stop that kind of thing? It is no good, the right honourable gentleman saying, I have something up my sleeve which I cannot reveal because I have to enforce the terms of the licence. <laughs> the right honourable gentleman cannot leave this matter to the Marconi Company. If the terms of the licence are going to be observed and infringements prevented, this will involve a considerable increase of staff in the Postmaster General's own department. I may say, in passing, that another department is imposing a tax of 33.3% on wireless apparatus. Last Friday, we asked that there might be a committee appointed to go into this question, and I have received a reply from the Leader of the House that he has seen no indication of any demand from those who provide such a service for such a committee. I am not at all surprised. I see no indication of a demand from a monopoly for an inquiry which will break down that monopoly. Then he goes on to say that he sees no demand from those who use it. If the demand of the representatives of the consumers, namely the members of this house, had not a demand, how is it to be put forward? This is the demand on behalf of those who use broadcasting apparatus. The only representatives of the users and consumers are the members of this house. That is why this house ought to prevail over all commercial monopolies and interests of all kinds. The Postmaster General says that he is giving this boon to this limited class of manufacturers for two years. Is there anyone, in light of our experience of the last four years, who will say that these fiscal advantages, once given, are ever withdrawn? Never. Whenever we ask for their withdrawal, we are told that it is not a suitable moment. The Postmaster General himself, I think, anticipates that it may be necessary to continue this after two years. He cannot say that he will not. In point of fact, when asked the question in committee, he said that he should be justified, if there were a monopoly, in reconsidering it, and he should certainly reconsider the position with regard to the period after that. So, far from being a two years limit, it is going to be for two years anyhow, and then it is going to be reconsidered. If anyone thinks that after two years the people who have lived out of this monopoly are going to submit without protest, and a successful protest against the deprivation of these privileges, he is to be congratulated on his hope.
While the Postmaster General is perfectly and obviously right to control the sending of messages, he is imposing, in deference to the fiscal opinion of others, adoptive in this case, congenital in the case of others, restrictions which will hamper growing science, because all of the great names associated with telegraphy are not British names, and it is perfectly absurd to set up a tariff reform system in science. What the people want is the freest intercourse of the scientific ideas of all the nations of the world. Lieutenant Colonel Hall. It is always interesting to hear my honourable and gallant friend when there is any question of protecting the interest of foreigners. Perhaps a little more education may bring him to the conclusion that it is advisable to look after the interests of our people at home. I would like to congratulate my right honourable friend on the progress that has been made, and that is likely to be made with this system. It might be an education to my honourable and gallant friend to know that in commerce... If a foreigner has any patent to sell, he knows the market where it can be utilised. I am glad to hear that the Postmaster General is not going to have any of these instruments made abroad, and I am sure he will be the first, if there be any advantages with regard to actual patents, to look after the matter. As to talking of this enormous combine... I say at once, so far as I am concerned, that as a businessman, I would not dream of putting any money into this undertaking, which is of the highest speculative character, if I were told that forthwith, subject to a limit of a small percentage, I am to have no chance of making any money. I want to refer to another matter, that affects London very considerably, namely the licensing hours. As they move on to discuss licensing hours, we will leave them there. Lieutenant Colonel Hall there showing sincere doubts about the lack of profits to be made out of broadcasting. Oh, and you may notice uh, two female voices in our cast there. There were two female MPs at the time, although neither partook in these broadcasting debates. And shall we pause a moment to appreciate and applaud our wonderful cast? Go on, applaud out loud. Now, go on. Thank you, our brilliant actors. There is more to come in a future episode. There were a couple more mentions in the Commons before the end of 1922, but it was a few weeks after the BBC's launch, so we will get to that in Season 2 of the podcast. We will return to Parliament. As to what happened next after this episode's debates, well, that last one was on August the 4th, 1922, so if you dive into Episode 13 of the podcast, that's where it picks up. The Broadcasting Committee finish their negotiations, they present them to the Postmaster General in mid-August, and then it's exhibitions, experimental broadcasts, and battling with the press. It's all back in Season 1, if you've not heard it. Then, of course, the BBC launches in November of 1922. The first voice on the BBC is Arthur Burroughs, and the second voice out of the Birmingham station is Percy Edgar, the most influential BBC regional director for the first couple of decades. And we will hear from him via his recently rediscovered memoirs never publicly heard before. They will be read to us by his grandson, the playwright David Edgar, next time on the podcast. Don't miss it. 
Before we go, a huge thank you to those of you who support the show on patreon.com slash paulcarenza. A marvellous few of you do. We thank you for it. If you would like to, head there to Patreon, have a look at the bonus stuff on offer. Thus far, it's monthly video or audio or writings, often beyond the scope of this podcast. But now and then I do post things relating to the history of broadcasting. This month I've uploaded there an exclusive 30-minute interview with Diddy David Hamilton. Bits of that interview will appear on the next season of the podcast. So you can wait for that or you can hear the full works early and in their entirety over at Patreon. David was a true gent and we spoke about his on-air debut in 1959, the Light Programme, Radio 1, his work with the Beatles, the Stones, Ken Dodd, Monty Python, so much more. The link is in the show notes if you would like to catch that now. And thank you if you've supported us on whether it's Patreon, PayPal, or by sharing, rating, reviewing this podcast, following us on Twitter, or joining our Facebook group. It all helps keep this one-man machine pumping out podcasts. And above all this episode, thank you to our brilliant cast. Cameron Potts as Captain Wedgwood Ben. Wayne Clark was the Speaker of the House. Paul Hayes as Sir Douglas Newton. Mike Simmons as Lieutenant Colonel Murray. Jack Shaw was Sir Donald McLean. Daniel Edison was Lieutenant Colonel Ward. Philip Rowe of the marvellous History of European Theatre podcast was Sir William Lane Mitchell. Sean Jacks was Mr Kiley, and his podcast, Tell Me a Bit About Yourself, is available now. Alan Stafford was the Deputy Chairman. Andrea Smith was Lieutenant Commander Kenworthy. David Kirkland was Mr Percy and Mr Ashley. James Maidman Fullard was Mr. Malone, Paul Savage was Mr. Foote, Lynn Robertson Hay was Lieutenant Colonel Hall, Philip Corsius was Mr. Halewood and Mr. Raffin, the Postmaster General Mr. Galloway was me, Paul Carenza, who also presented and produced, Will Farmer composed the original music, and this episode contains parliamentary information licensed under the Open Parliament License version 3.0. Thank you, Hansard. Stay informed, educated, and entertained, and join us next time for a special with the second voice of the BBC, Percy Edgar, here on the British Broadcasting Century.